look this morning at um, verses 11 through 19. It goes to a story something like this. Uh, Jesus is in his third year of ministry. It's near the end. He's making his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Well, it's not really the last time. He'll be back. But the last time in his public ministry on earth... And he happens, as he's going through Samaria and Galilee, upon ten lepers who cry out to him. And he tells them to go see the priest. And as they're going, they are healed. And one returns back. One returns back to Christ to give thanks, to give glory, and to give thanks to God. It goes like this. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down at his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, We're not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. All right, let's break it down, shall we? Now, it happened as he went to Jerusalem, he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. First three words, now it happened. If you're kind of new to the Bible, new to the faith, new to Christianity, or you've been involved in some other spirituality, some other religion, some other whatever, know this before you go any further. It happened. Now it happened. It happened in time and space. Christ physically, he's not hysterical, he's historical. He physically came to the earth in time and space. Galatians 4.4 4 says, in the fullness of time. He was born in a manger. He did have a ministry for three years on earth. It's written about outside the Bible, or it's written about certainly in the Bible. It's confirmed in testimonies outside the Bible by historians and certainly inside the text. There are rivers and mountains and lakes and valleys and flowers and fauna and animals and customs and money and uh, Roman Empire and all things that all come together archaeologically and historically to validate the fact that what we're talking about actually happened. These are narratives, not stories made up by somebody with some sort of emotional social deficiency. These are actual accounts that happened, and many of you have actually been to the actual places with Angie and I, and you've actually touched, seen, feel the fragrances of the Holy Land. It happened. And as he went, he went towards Jerusalem. You might as well figure out, every time you go towards Jerusalem, you actually go towards Jerusalem every day if you're seeking peace. Jerusalem is the city of peace. Now, it has been overturned 39 times throughout history, but it is the city of peace. It is Jerusalem the peace of God, the city of peace. God, bring us to your peace today, a peace that transcends all understanding and guards our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You came here today, whether you realize it or not, to worship the Prince of Peace who ascended the throne and became the King of Kings, sits at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. Peace. I want some peace today. Notice something about Jesus. He's usually going somewhere. 
I look around our ministry team sometimes. If I see somebody sitting behind their desk too long, I kick them out. I said, your job is not to sit at the desk. Your job is to have coffee with people and eat two or three lunches a day and put on 30 or 40 pounds. Your job is to meet and greet and introduce people and be out there in the community. Who needs you sitting behind a desk? I get itchy if I sit behind a desk too long. Go to a hospital room. Go to the highways and byways of the world. Your Christianity is not meant to be experienced in front of multiple commentaries sitting in front of you and 12 or 13 websites as you parse the Scripture. That's all great. But you better get on the move too. You need to be out talking to people, listening to people, laying hands on people, helping people, serving people. That's what we're on this earth to do. So it happened. And he moved towards peace. And he went through those people loved and those people he didn't. In fact, they hated him. Two words for you today. Go and flow. Go and flow. Go somewhere and flow into something. Like I said that email for Thanksgiving. Eat all you want, but make sure you feed somebody's soul. Whose soul are you going to feed this week? Beyond the move to do it. God moves when we move. He doesn't move as much when we sit still. In fact, the whole gospel, all four gospels, and the book of Acts is just constantly moving. Constantly moving. Then as he entered a certain village, he met there ten men who were lepers, skin conditions of some kind, who stood afar off. I think I've shared this with you before, if not in a podcast. What distance, at a very minimum, did a leper have to keep from someone who was not a leper? Four and a half cubits. And what is that? Six feet. That was it. Social distancing. Six feet. At least. So here they are, afar off, further than that. And there's ten of them. You're here today. You're in the sound of my voice. You're listening online. You're sitting at home. And you feel afar off. You may not be, but you feel that way. You feel afar off. He's closer to you than you realize if you don't know him. And he's in you if you do know him. But that doesn't negate the the reality that sometimes we feel afar off. One thing you should take note of, that Jesus is on the move. And he's pursuing you. And as we've covered, I think, extensively last week, Goodness and mercy are pursuing you all the days of your life. And by faith in Christ, you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you feel afar off, you came to the right place this morning. At the right time. Close the distance that you perceive as between you and him. They were afar off. So what did they do? They lifted their voices up. Now, if you've ever met anybody, I guess I would have to be included in the group of people that raise their voice. I'm a voice raiser. I think there's times in the Bible to be passionate. Passion for Christ will be one of the most uh, notable things that the culture will take note of and be influenced by in the days ahead in our country, passion. 
we, we go to Israel, I used to say every year, that's not the case anymore. But anyway, we have a guide, and he's a Cajun Jew. <laughs> I think went to Catholic school. I think he's still sorting all that out, and I don't blame him. <laughs> anyway, he moved, he's a friend of ours, he moved to Israel to a kibbutz in the 70s. And he's a guy, one of the, he's one of the best guides in all of Israel. Many, some of you have met him. He made, a, he made a comment. Now here's a guy, here's a guy that's led hundreds of trips with hundreds of church groups, with hundreds of ministers. Seen it all. The good, bad, and the ugly. He's seen legalism, arid, dry tours, boring tours. He's probably looked at his calendar and said, I got nine more days of this tour. I can't wait for it to be over. But one thing he said about ours that I'll never forget, and I'm not, I'm not tooting my own horn here. He goes, man, that's a passionate group. And he noticed that. He noticed that you can take something that's been around for 2,000 years, you can share it with one another, and it can bring life. It can bring life. And, and sometimes you do have to clap your hands and shout unto God with a voice of triumph because you're excited about who you're following, who you're serving, who you know, who you're praying to, who's speaking back to you, who's changing you, who's transforming you. It's something to get excited about. If the church of Jesus Christ is not excited about Christ, nor will this culture be. I don't know what excited is for you, but you better get, find that gear. You got to find that gear. It might be a lower gear. You might be an introvert. You might be an obnoxious high DI like me. I, I found out I'm only like three percent of the population. Man, am I a weirdo? But you've got to find your gear. Passion. See, there were they were passion. They were more passionate about Christ than the people that were traveling with them. They're crying out in a loud voice. Hey, they can't get close. They got to do something. They're beckoning Christ, beseeching Christ, if you want to get really uh, Christian about it. They're, they're really inviting him, appealing to him, calling on his name, more so than probably the people that believe in him. And they're calling him over, raise their voice, lifted up their voices. That's notable. That's notable. Sometimes you raise your voice because you need, you, you need somebody to pay attention to you. Well, sometimes you've got to get passionate about your faith so the world can look at you and go, that guy actually gives a rip. Right? This, this flatline stuff, you know, really doesn't get it. If you were channel surfing and it came out some TV show, some flatline blah plot line and nothing going on in the story, that would last three to four seconds with you. You'd be on the next station. Well, as you review the people of faith in your life, and if you're a lost sheep, you don't have any savior, you don't have any forgiveness of sin, you've you got to find somebody who's happy about where they're at. Raise your voice. Passionate about Christ. It's safe to lift your voice when you're among other believers. Practice it. So that when you're not with other believers, you can still be passionate. Step out there. Be counted. Be seen. Be noticed. We ought to stick out like sore thumbs. Because we have a passion for Christ. I kid about football. I know there's... I know there's 85 denominations represented here this morning. I know there's about 17 or 18, 25 football teams represented. I get it. 
But what I, here's what I don't get. How do you take a savior of the world and make him intimately available to you on a daily basis and more, and we're more excited about the outcome of a four overtime game than we are Christ. Well, I know we're not, but we've got to show it. These people are ravenous fans. They paint their bodies all kind of weird colors. colors. They're half naked standing up there. They're trying to be the best fans they could possibly be. They're having more fun in college than they're ever going to have the rest of their life because now after college, you're supposed to be boring. I guess it's okay to be fanatical about something. Fanatical is not the word you want to use when it comes to Jesus, I can tell you that, but you want to be passionate. They lifted their voices. And they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. I learned this a long time ago, and um, I just was reminded of it recently. I used to use the Lord's name in vain often, as did everyone I hung around. It's horrible. There was one word I didn't like to hear. I, I, I don't know if I was experiencing conviction. I, I, I don't know. I, I, it was a word that when you said it, it was so specific, and there was no question as to what you meant by it, by saying it, you put yourself in a category, in a pigeonhole that others weren't in. And what is that word? It's, it's this one. Jesus. You can say God all you want. Anybody says God. You can say God and mean anything you want to mean. It could be anything to anybody at any time. But you start saying Jesus, now you get specific. These people said Jesus. They called on the name of the Lord. Those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's why I couldn't say it. It just didn't seem right. It seemed too right. It seemed too proper. It seemed too specific for me in my lost state to be walking around talking about Jesus. Now, it would come up, like on Jeopardy question might have the name Jesus in it from time to time. That was permissible with me. Somehow it was academic. But I didn't like the name Jesus. They did. They liked the name Jesus, and they said it. Guess what happens when you call someone by their name? They pay attention. What's the hardest thing for people to do nowadays? Remember someone's name for longer than 15 seconds. Right? The name that is above every name. This Jesus. Now, it was a common name back then. Everyone was named Jesus. Like Smith. But this one they knew. And they said master after it. Now, master means teacher, um, rabbi, teacher, master. We have a qu- let, me have a, let me have a question for you here. Are you remaining, regardless of how you're progressing in age, progressing in experience, are you remaining teachable? You live, whether you realize it or not, in the information age. 
You have all the information you need accessible to you within milliseconds. You can't ask a question in my home anymore without someone saying, especially when the kids are there, without someone saying, you have the answer right in front of you. Your, your, your phone. I remember when I was a kid, now I'm starting to date. I'm starting to say that a lot more, by the way. If you, you know that's a problem when you start saying, I remember when I was a kid. I remember when I was a kid. Actually, I don't remember, but I know I was a kid at one time. When you, if you wanted to answer a question like that, you had to get up Walk across the room, and if you didn't have to change the channel for your dad to one of three stations, you had to get the encyclopedia off of there and see if you could get an answer out of the book. You actually had a Dewey Decimal System at the library. You had a lot of things going on that you actually had to make an effort to get information. Now it's effortless. Now, so it begs the question, and it's okay, it's a good question. Are you teachable? Are we teachable? Because these people were teachable and they got healed. Are you teachable? Now, I also am very much aware of this because I speak in front of people, you know, pretty much all the time. The larger the group, typically speaking, the more general the message. Smaller the group, the more targeted the message. If you put uh, sage-seasoned uh, Christ, people have been Christians for 50 years in a room with me to talk about intercession. The what I talk with them about will be different than knowing that in this room right now are a handful of people who are very new in Christ, people who are listening don't even know who he is, people that wandered in the door thought they were at something else, some other function. So you, you have to be general, but you also can be specific. Do you realize that if you've never really been taught beyond the level of the sanctuary, there's probably an astounding amount of things that you have yet to learn about Christ, especially if that sanctuary was a megachurch. Think about it. We evaluate our Christian faith oftentimes by what we hear from something like this pulpit. But there is so, so, so much more. The greatest thing lacking in the church today, among, well, there's many things, and there's many positives too, but passion is one and depth is another. Depth. If we are not careful, the sto- economic storms, cultural storms, all kind of storms will come, and we got to make sure we got roots that are deep enough to handle the storms. Anyway, they were teachable. They saw him as Jesus, the one who saves, and master the teacher. We follow him, and he teaches us. I think most of what he taught was on the move, by the way. Very little of what he taught was in a classroom. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he turned over and looked at him. Now, this is a fair question. When he looks at you, what does he see? When he looks at you, what does he see? When you look at him, what do you see? Because this Lord of ours, the Master Teacher, sees you as you see yourself where you are. Let me say it a different way. 
He sees you in two ways. Who you could be, who you were meant to be, who you were destined to be, who you were called to be. All that's one. The second way he sees you as you see yourself. He has to see you as you see yourself because he hits every time how to minister to the person. How you see yourself, how you come up with your identity is a revealing thing to God because it tells him how to minister to you. He sees a group of people who are sick, mandated to stay away from them, crying in a loud voice, having prayed that morning and prepared himself for a day of ministry, he sees people without a social life, who are lonely, who are troubled, who are overwhelmed, who are desperate, who are loudmouthed longer than anyone else, who know they need mercy and know they need to be taught something. He sees all of that in a second. Now he knows how to minister to them. He sees them. And then he said to them, said to them some things. Now, because we've had, this is an interesting thing to me, because we've had some people healed as of late in this church, in this ministry, some fairly astounding things have happened. But but since that's happened now, um, we're getting phone calls from different places. People want to come over and be prayed for and stuff, which is fine. It's great. But here's the problem. We seem to think that if you want, if someone wants healing, what you do is you uh, put your hand on them and you pray. Or you anoint them with oil, say some things, read some scripture and pray. Well, of course there's nothing wrong with that. But it's not really all there is to it. A man came recently who, who, who has some, some very dire uh, diagnosis of, of rather regarding his eye, his sight, his, 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 even his migraines, his brain. It's, it's a fairly serious thing. He traveled a substantial way, and he was here, and we met with him, because people tend to want to come here for help, by the way. So the, the, the idea is, okay, let's do this. Let's do this one-and-done thing. We'll pray for you and send you on your way, and God bless you. Thanks for coming. Say good night, Gracie. But, but it's more than that. If you look at another person that you want to minister to and you look at them as Jesus looks at them, you're going to see their primary needs. Their healing is their secondary need. What's their primary need? What is their primary underlying need that we have in our life? And with meeting with this gentleman, who I know not that well, it became fairly clear as we prayed about it, talked about it, that he's a little uptight. That he's a, he's a doer, not a rester. He's a pusher, not a receiver. He's always doing something, doing something, doing something. And, and you do something, do something, do something. After a while, it, it, it doesn't really take on the look of a meaningful relationship with God. It looks like someone doing something all the time. So I, I asked him if he'd spend a week not praying. And I wouldn't say that, I mean, just to say it. I said it because his prayer life had become so dutiful, so robotic, it wasn't even fruitful. It would have been better if he didn't do it at all. 
So his underlying issue is that he needed to receive and to rest and to stop doing. And you know what? There's probably a connection between his underlying need and his actual physical need. Stress, anxiety, works righteousness. Uh, Some people have a lack of forgiveness towards other people. They have a vengeance towards others. They have a hatred towards others. They have a disdain towards others. Well, that's buried way, way deep down in your visceral (laughs) insides here. But it manifests itself in some sort of physical condition. So Jesus sees these people just like he sees you this morning. When I invite you to come to this altar to be prayed for for healing, listen, (laughs) he sees your underlying need. Let's not act like it's not there, shall we? Let's not go to the top and say, no, I really just need you to handle this ear thing or this eye thing or this leg thing or this sciatic nerve thing. No, no, he sees way deeper than that. It could be the forgiveness that's needed for somebody. You get this stuff built up, and it's bound to affect you physically. Not always. But Jesus sees people. A lot, I'm going to read you a verse, and a lot of people think this is about prayer, and it's really not. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. I, some people get this picture of Jesus on the throne having a virtual ongoing 24-7 prayer meeting for each of us, mentioning us by name, all 8 billion. Listen, he already prayed for you. And it was uh, pretty much a dead-on prayer. It's going to be answered, okay? We don't need to keep uh, (laughs) going over it. I mean, it's a pretty good prayer. I mean, it's like locked and loaded. It's not that he prays for us. It's that he intercedes. He puts himself where we are in our situation. He feels what we feel. There's an interchange there, intercession. There's an in-between. He's, he's knowing what's going on deep inside of you that's affecting you in every area of your life. When he intercedes for the lepers, he knows that they're alienated, lonely, troubled, they need a bath, they're broke, they can't get a job, and everything else. He sees that, Okay. He feels that. That's why the Spirit agrees with us. This word intercede in the New Testament in Hebrews 7.25 means to entreat to meet with somebody. It means to enter into a conversation with somebody. It means to come beside, to fall in with. Jesus wants to fall in with you and talk about the underlying issues that maybe need to be resolved because he's Jesus and because he's a master teacher and because he sees you and he sees you as you see you. Something here recently, there's been more and more people who have been coming and saying, I mean, they're just like, in the office, they just, whoom, there it is. This regurgitate everything that they've never told anybody, and they've been harboring this for months, years, decades, there it is, blah, there it is. And I'm like, whoa, man, that was really something. That was transparent. And that was seriously true. Man, uh, a little heads up on that. I, I, I didn't see that coming. Boom, a bomb goes off. And suddenly everything that was hidden is no longer hidden. Everything repressed was no longer repressed. Everything that frustrated them is no longer frustrating them. Now they're ready receive healing. Because healing is wholeness. Healing is not just physical. It's emotional. 
mental. A lot of things. So he looks at them, sees what, and feels what they need, and he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, why would he say that? Because the Old Testament says, go show yourself to the priest, and you'll be declared whole. And then you can re-enter society, because their biggest need when he looked at them was fellowship, community, friendship, family, love, return to your spouse, get a job, be functional in society. So the only way these people were doing that is to get an official get-out-of-jail-free card from the priest. Leviticus 14. So he sends them. And, as, and so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. They knew enough about Jesus to know if he said go to the priest that it was a foregone conclusion he didn't send you there in the wild goose chase. You were going to get declared whole, free, nice. Sometimes we can't open our hands and receive anything from the Lord because we're holding on to our baggage too tight. So do yourself a favor. Don't ask anybody to pray for you for healing until you're willing to let one of them down to the ground, maybe two. Now let's have a conversation about that. A lot of people say, why are people being healed? I just explained it to you. We're carrying too much baggage. Not everybody, many people. We need this Jesus and we need this master teacher and we need one who will look at us and speak to our underlying issue and set the captives free. Provide release for the prisoners. Recovery of sight for the blind. Yes, the lepers needed a priest. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice again glorified God. One dude. Like, that's not... Like, if Jesus was base, Major League Baseball, he'd be batting like 100 on this one. I mean, he's like a, a relief pitcher in the batter's box. I mean, it's not very good. Can't make a living batting 100. One-tenth returned. One out of ten returned. One first fruit returned. One representative one who was set apart and consecrated to the, to the, from the others came back to Christ. One. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus needed a tithe. Someone that represented the other nine. Some part of what his ministry did that represented what happened in all the rest. Just like when you bring a tithe to the house of God, you bring a tenth, and that tenth represents all the other things that you have. And the man fell down on his face, at his feet, giving him thanks. Here's what I like about this guy. True glorification of God. True thanksgiving. I think is most obviously seen and demonstrated when somebody finds a place lower than they were previously to give thanks. You see, it's one thing to overcome something and give thanks from an elevated position of favor. It's another thing to find a more humble place below even where you were and revisit that desperation and desperately want to thank him. 
Some of you have been in some very low places. Some of you have been broke, dead broke, couldn't afford to pay attention. Some of you at one time were close to missing meals. It's hard, isn't it? In abundance, in prosperity, with financial security, with a, with, a, with a swelling checkbook. It's hard to give thanks. In that, secu- quote, security, it's harder to give thanks than it would be the day after you receive something when you were in a really low place. It's difficult. I find it challenging. I'm there myself. We had almost missed a few meals. We were dead broke. I've sat at home for days at a time in freezing cold because I couldn't afford to turn the heat on. I know what that's like. If I can go back to that and give thanks out of that desperation, that's thanks. I throw the Lord a bone, you know. Hey, thanks for everything. I appreciate it. I'm doing pretty good. Thanks. Appreciate it. That's different. This, this dude here, he gets on, on, down in the soil. At least in a leper, he stood on the ground. Now his face is in it. That's humility. And that's why he came back. He fell down. Face at his feet. Cicero said, gratitude is not the greatest of virtues, but the parent of all the others. Hey, if you're here today and you don't really into the God thing, haven't yet pulled out the God card, listen to me. You've said it a million times and you haven't really thought it through. You've been grateful and thankful for what you have. But gratitude and thanksgiving necessitates an object of the gift. You have to be grateful to someone, thankful to someone. What do you have that you did not have any ability to acquire on your own? What came your way that you did nothing to deserve? What is it that you have today that originated in another to be thankful to that you could not have manufactured on your own? How about breath? How about physical health? How about the creation? At the very bottom, how about love? How about forgiveness? How about gratitude? How about the euphoria of knowing you're free? These things you can't manufacture, you can't buy. You can only be grateful for them. You can only be thankful for them. And it necessitates a source. If you're here today and you think there's no God, how then do you have these things that you're supposed to be grateful for? From whom did they come? Come on. Come on. Enough. Charles Brown, in the newsletter written in June 1990, asked this, uh, answered this question. Why did only one cleansed leper return to thank Jesus? The following are nine suggested reasons why the nine did not return. One waited to see if the cure was real. I'm here to tell you, Christ is real. Christ is reality. He is truth. What he does is real, fictional. One waited to see if the cure was real. One waited to see if it would last. This Christ of which I speak is eternal. His promises are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He holds all things together. If your life's falling apart, you need him. He holds all things together. Waited to see if it would last. Come on. One said he would see Jesus later. 
Yeah, you would. What? How many procrastinators do we have in the house? Thank you. There we go. Well, there's an underlying need, huh? I don't want to get into it right now. Let's talk about it later. One decided that he had never had leprosy. One said he had he would have gotten well anyway. Oh, jeez. One gave the glory to the priests. Don't make an idol out of the church. Church is a means to God. Don't worship the liturgy, the tradition, the ornateness of the church. So many of these things that are so noble and everything can be idols, careful. One said, oh well, Jesus didn't really do anything. One said, a rabbi could have done, any rabbi could have done that. And one said, I was already much improved. (laughs) Then why were you yelling for him? And he said to them, arise, go your way. Have the musicians and vocalists come up. Arise, go your way. The more I study these healings in the Bible, the more I see that this word arise is so important. Jesus has this incredible ability uh, of consistency. What he says one day is consistent with what he says another. There's a continuity of truth is what I call it. And he always has an upward movement to what he does. Rise and be healed. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. I say to you, little girl, get up. There's always a up, upward movement what he does. It's always positive. It's always encouraging. It's always moving upward. Look upward. Pray upward. Whatever you got to do. It's an upward mobility kind of thing, spiritual mobility. Get up. Stand up. Stand up for something, you see. Let your faith rise. Get up. Let your faith get up. Let your love increase. Let your love get up. Get your thinking up. Get your, start looking up. Don't be so downcast. Lift up your countenance, he says. I don't know much, and I don't pretend to know much, but I, I know the following. You call on Jesus, you can expect some results. Because when he speaks, action follows. Let me say it again. When he speaks, action follows. He said, let there be light, and there was light, and it was good. What he speaks comes to pass immediately. Be healed. Your faith is, has made you well. His voice was so tangible to John the Revelator, John said, I turned around to see the voice. You don't turn around to see the voice, you turn around to hear a voice. No, he wanted to see the voice. The Word of God is, is, is about, it's living and active. It's, it's a doing thing. It's an active, life-giving, inspired source of correction, training and righteousness, encouragement, and all those things that we need at the underlying issues in our life. Yes. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is calling the name of Jesus. And we don't know all we think we know. I'm here today, I got this fancy degrees and everything. I I'd like to know ten percent of what I think I really know. Before I came to Christ, I wish I knew t- 
1% what I thought I really knew. There's a whole world out there of, of God moving, God's spirit, the miraculous, restoration, healing. I don't know much about it, but I know if you call on the name of Jesus and you do it passionately, he'll teach you something you didn't know about him and him first. Because he is the true source of what we're looking for, primarily. I know that. I also know from a personal standpoint that if God was going to continue to heal people in this church, he would not centralize any one person to do it. I know that. He would use the body of Christ, one another, the priesthood of all believers. He would use people that look at another person and through dialogue and, and interaction and compassion would find out if they had a primary source that needed to be met. He would see them as they see themselves, whether it be in shame or fractured or broken or whatever. You have a healing taking place, maybe even physical. I also know this. You, if you make a move, he'll meet you. And, and that move right now is just to come to the altar. It's an action step. It's a movement. It's not sitting still. It's acknowledging that he's on a throne. It's acknowledging that. It's a foregone conclusion. If you come to an altar, you're recognizing that there's someone sitting on a throne who's worthy to approach. And you can come boldly to the throne of grace. So that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna come to this altar if you need any kind of healing in your life, any kind, or you need something totally unrelated. Be still. Let go. Receive. Rest. You're invited at any time as you feel led. Be still. Let go. Receive. Let's get our minds right.
have in common this morning is underlying need of the forgiveness of sin, a reminder of the grace and mercy of God. It's called Eucharist. It means Thanksgiving. It's another Thanksgiving table for you. And this one is a slightly different than the one you sat at earlier in the week. Feeds your soul. Restores you. So the communicants would come forward. We're going to prepare our hearts for Holy Communion. It is holy, meaning it is separate from everything else. It's unlike anything else. It's a sacrament, meaning it's a mystery. I don't know how much you know and don't know, but you'll never know the fullness of this meal and its implications. And that's the best place to keep it. Because there ought to be something of God that's beyond our ability to truly, fully understand it. Because his ways are not our ways. When these elements come your way, I want to hold on until everyone is served. We're going to apply this brokenness and wholeness to our own life. We're going to partake of the cup together to meet our underlying needs. We're going to call in the name of Jesus, the Master. Amen? Let's pray. I pray for fullness. As full as we can be today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's hold the elements until all are served, please.
night our Lord was betrayed by his own. He took the bread and he blessed it. He broke it, he gave it to him, he said, take heed, this is my body, broken for you. Here's a question for you, what needs mending? Partake of the mender's body, broken body of Christ. a small problem when we look at ourselves and Jesus looks at us he sees us as we see ourselves this is problematic because we see sin he sees that he's separated sin from us as far as the east is from the west it's best to live a well arranged life we begin to see ourselves as he sees us. Behold, the Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world. That includes, my friend, yours. It certainly includes mine. Your sins are forgiven. Please change the way you view yourself. Your sins are forgiven by the blood of the Lamb. I want to encourage you this week to ask God for sounds strange ask God for a leper and go find him and go look at him see him as they see themselves start putting them back together again with truth and love and prayer fellowship and hugs and encouragement counsel Lay hands on them. Do what you have to do. Let them leave an encounter with you different than before you ever met them. Sow something righteous into someone's life. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. You've got a wonderful, restful weekend. You've got another week ahead. Great to see all you are visiting from out of town. We love you. I gotta say it. Go dogs. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Amen.